Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, coming at you live from Creep Record Studios in Hostel City, USA, brother. It's the Rock and Wrestling Connection. Here we are in the corner of Fifth and Gerard. I got my co-host Jay Goldberg with me. Eric Victor is going to produce this thing. We're at Creep Records. The Rock and Wrestling Connection podcast is on the air. Oh my God! Oh my! Okay. Here we go. Well, how many people can say this? Worked the original Starcades, worked a WrestleMania match with The Undertaker, and like the great Bon Jovi said, he went from the corner of Swanson and Rittner to the Tokyo Dome. I mean, what the heck? You got a lot of accomplishments. Bill Alfonso here with us tonight. Hey, Bill. Hey, it's great to be with you guys tonight, Daddy. I, I love the concept. I love the music. And I love the red. You know of I course. love wrestling. So, um, yeah, we talk music, and then we'll talk a little bit of wrestling. What was it? Uh, you grew up in the Tampa area. What was it like? What kind of music was going on in your house and in the neighborhood when you were growing up? Well, um, as a young kid, a real young kid, um, I saw the Beatles. The first Holy. time the Beatles showed up in the United States, they went Ed Sullivan. Saw the Beatles, you know, uh, 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 then, uh, then growing up like that, when I was real young, like Dave Clark Five, the Beatles, uh, Wayne Newton. We didn't when we were young. We didn't know if Wayne Newton was a boy <laughs> or a girl because he had that weird look. You know what I mean? And look, he turned out to be one of the biggest superheroes, a national treasure. You know. Uh, um, then I started getting a little older and started getting into stuff. Uh, um, oh, I got a, 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 some pretty cool stories. When I was a young kid, my mom had this uh, lady that would come over and help her iron my dad's shirts and stuff and do some house cleaning. And she was a black lady, beautiful. And she lived in the black neighborhood. And there was a park in the black neighborhood. And so I went over, I was friends with her kids. They were my age. So I went over and was hanging out with this young kid in the black park. And they had a concert in the park. I must have been about 12 or 13. I barely remember this, but, um, so this guy comes, he's singing like hell. He's singing like hell, some really cool music. And at the end of the show, uh, he's walking off stage and they come put a cloak over his shoulders. And it was, and, and he threw the cloak off and started singing. It was James Brown. Unbelievable. Another great story. So, um, I was a young kid. My brother was four years older than me. So say I was 13 or something. Somehow I tagged along with him and he took me and every weekend they had this little festival. It was, it was called at the men's garden club. It was men's garden club where they had, uh, personalities, local people. And, and, uh, you won't believe this. So, um, at the concert with my brother, and I'm a pain in the ass because I'm 12 or 13 years old or whatever age I was. And this guy comes on, and he's playing the guitar left-handed with a headband on. Guess Sounds who it like was? Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix it was Jimi Hendrix. Couldn't believe it. I didn't know who the fuck Jimi Hendrix was. I'm wow, a young kid. You know, but I remember the scene. And, and later on, of course, you know, uh, legendary Jimi. And uh, one more uh, for you. My friend worked at... Uh, a hall was called Curtis Hickson Hall, like a little venue. And he used to get, uh, and he worked there. So any event that was there, he would invite me to come because he worked the event, sweep ups at the chairs up or whatever he did. 
And uh, I saw Janis Joplin. Unbelievable! There. I mean, you saw all the greats. Wow. So I saw three three heavyweights: uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and the uh, Soul Man. And this is all like when you're 13, 14 years old. Correct. I might have been a little younger on on uh, James Brown, and I might have been, you know, real young at, at Jimi Hendrix, but <laughs> not too old when I when the, the guy invited me because he used to invite me to any event, like the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> would come. He would bring me because I was—he was my brother's best friend, you know. So that was fucking pretty cool. So when when you're that age and you go see Jimi Hendrix and you don't know who he is, are you an instant fan the the second you see him? Or are you like hooked and you need to see this all the time? No, of course not. No, no, I didn't know he was. It's, even even if my brother said, "Oh, that's Jimi Hendrix," but he wasn't scheduled to be at a show. I guess he was in Florida doing something. And he just pops in because he knew it was a, you know, pop culture place or whatever. So I didn't know who Jimi Hendrix was. No, but at did all. you like? Were you were you like an ultimate? Like, did you become a super fan? Like, yeah, just like from seeing him. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yes, it had an effect yeah. on you. So a couple years later, I guess you get you pick up an automobile, maybe, and uh, maybe start going to concerts on your own. Yes, with my buddies and stuff, we would go to like. The Allman Brothers, uh, Wet Willie, uh, Marshall Tucker Band. I've seen uh, Led Zeppelin um, at uh, Tampa Stadium. I've seen uh, uh, Pink Floyd when they had the big laser show. Uh, a lot of concerts like that. Uh, Jay Giles Band. Um, I got a good one for you. I took my, before I started, I, I went to Tokyo in 1991. And I refereed the main event. It was Ric Flair against Fujinami. 65,000 people at an indoor show at the Tokyo Dome. Um, and I did such a good job. And Dusty was a boss. Uh, and he hired me to... Uh, I signed a contract that night to go to TBS and work for Ted Turner WCW. But I had already promised my daughter a vacation. And I took her to Switzerland for 14 days. So I go to Switzerland, and I have a friend there. That's a girl. We hung out. My daughter had her pen pal and all that. So they were, she was all hooked up. So me and this girl, she said, oh, I got a surprise for you. I said, oh, great. I love surprises. She took me to the voodoo tour in Basel, Switzerland in 1991. You know, of course, the Rolling Stones. It was pretty cool. Sold out for, uh, Saturday and Sunday, too. Sold out was at an outdoor stadium show. So I've been to tons of concerts. And then... Uh, so that's that's pretty good. Uh, what's stuff. what was what's, what's the crowd difference between like a you know, American crowd and a crowd in Switzerland? They were more subdued, more laid back, like like Japan. Uh, you know how the people here. The, the, I'm talking wrestling fans now. Like the wrestling fans in Japan are different. They, you know, here we're all begging to see, yeah, 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 and those people go, ooh, ah, and they clap. So make they do a big something and they. It clapped, you know, there's no big hopping like, so they're more subdued than us. And in Switzerland too, that's why I was comparing Switzerland to Japanese. They were just laid back and everybody was smoking <laughs> ash. Everybody was smoking ash. So I was smoking a little ash too. And I see a cop in Rome. and uh, the girls, and I say, oh, fuck, let me put this pipe down or whatever. And the girl says, oh, no, we're the cop smoking too. <laughs> so, all right, fuck. So when you're, uh, you, I guess you, uh, 
get into wrestling, um, you're in Texas when you first start. When you're driving around uh, Texas, you know, um, are you are you driving to the shows with other wrestlers at this point? Yes, yes, and they were listening. To, they were listening. I got a good woman Nelson story too. Um, they were listening. I was in Texas. They were listening to like Willie Nelson and uh, um, Well and Jennings and David Allen Cole and guys like that. Well, those particular guys that I was traveling with. But then there was young guys like the Von Erics and shit. They were a little more rock and roll, of course. But I didn't get to hang with them, you know. Uh, I was at the show with them, but I didn't get to hang with them right in the car. So I don't know what they were listening to. But the guys I rode with were uh, older guys, and, and they were all into the country thing. So speaking of Willie Nelson, um, him and Dusty were friends. And I worked under Dusty for years. And Willie came to a few shows uh, uh, at the Omni in Atlanta. It'd be pretty fucking cool if I was doing the wrestling show as refereeing, and in walks Willie Nelson, and he just acts like one of the boys. Fuck, I couldn't believe it. My jaw dropped. I love Willie, really. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was pretty cool, you know, to hang out with. I didn't hang out with him. I was in the same room with 20 other wrestlers, you know, and Willie was talking to Dusty, and of course he said hello to everybody. He was in his long-ass hair, and that was pretty Yeah, Willie cool. showed up at a WrestleMania, too, at one point. Um, do you remember any other? Uh... Oh, him and Dusty were real tight, real tight. David Allen Cole uh, came to yeah, the show. Yeah, he, he, uh, he performed at a couple of the Great American Bashes, too. Yep. Dusty was connected with all those superstars. You remember any other uh, musicians that would come to the shows, whether it be at WWF or ECW when you were working? Well, I was in uh, WWF, WrestleMania 9, and here is this fucking beautiful black man, and I didn't recognize him because he had lost a lot of weight. He was big at one time. It was Luther Vandross, right? So he was in the green room. I I got another star, a, a, a big celebrity, Singer, uh, so Luther, and then once somebody said, "Oh, that's Luther Vandross," says, "Oh, you fucking kidding me?" Because remember, he went and died and lost all that weight or whatever. Uh, so I didn't recognize him. Of course, his music is, you know, fucking Luther Vandross. He's got a voice like a fucking angel. So I went up there and introduced myself, and I had a girl with me, uh, my uh, what, my girlfriend at the time, and I took her to Las Vegas to WrestleMania Nine and. You know, we're having a good time. We're in the green room and shit, and I'm talking to Luther. And listen to this. So I'm trying to make friends with him. It's a small talk. So I said, hey, Luther, Fonzie. Oh, I got a friend named Fonzie. Is your last name Alfonso? I said, yeah. So that's where Fonzie comes in from. So I'm talking to Luther, and I'm trying to put him over. And I say, hey, Luther, every time um, your music comes on and... I'm with my girlfriend. It, it, you sing so good, it makes my girlfriend's <laughs> pussy wet, right? I told him that. He got embarrassed. He's all oh, Fonzie. And my girlfriend got embarrassed, too. I was trying to make light, make Fonzie's a joke, Fonzie's popping right? the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he got a little laugh out of after he, you know, got over his little embarrassment. Uh, and he said... Uh, he liked me after that for some reason. We started bullshitting a little more. He said, I said, hey, I would love to come to one of your concerts. I guess he was performing in Vegas. And he, uh, he said, oh, Fonzie, anytime you want to come to my concert, here's a contact number for you. I don't know who the number was, but it was one of his guys. And and uh, 
So I called the number. I was doing a show in Madison Square. Luther was there two days later in Madison Square Gardens. And I called the number and I saw Luther Vendos perform in Madison Square Gardens. And then I was in Los Angeles. He said, Fonzie, I don't care if you come to 50 <laughs> concerts. You call me every time, every time you're around me. Uh, or, you know, I'm in town and you're there, you call this number. And I saw him at the Los Angeles Forum where the Lakers used to be. It's a round building. And they don't use it no more, I think. You know, they get another building. But anyway, Luther was pretty cool. So I'm, so that's my Luther story. So uh, here's another story about a great, this is one of a legendary guy. This is the father, and I'm, uh, I met the daughter. Uh, and the father was a national fucking treasure and just sing beautiful. And he passed away, but he's got his daughter, um, Nat oh, King wow. Cole, right? That's a big name. And then I saw his daughter was in the green room in Las Vegas uh, at WrestleMania 9. Oh, wow. Because Las Vegas got tons of celebrities because they're performing in 20 different hotels. So uh, I met her and some music, they were playing music and I danced with her a little bit and uh, uh, backstage, just, you know, we were chatting and stuff and the song came out and I did like maybe a 15 second dance with her, you know, that was pretty good. And she was the nicest freaking girl. She had her two kids with her. That's why she came to wrestling. She didn't know too much about wrestling, but uh, the kids did. Um, I thought I thought maybe uh, working a WrestleMania match was a pretty big deal, but uh, having a little dance with a Grammy Award winner—not too many people can say that. No, and I got a, I got a picture. I'm going to send it to you. Can I send Absolutely. it to the number? I will send you some wrestling pictures, and if I got any uh, music people, I know I got me and Natalie. Uh, oh, I got me and uh, Luther too. A picture of me and Luther <laughs> Can't too. Can't wait. That night in Vegas. Yeah, it was fucking beautiful. Las Vegas, are you kidding me? WrestleMania 9. I'm a young kid from, well, I was already been in the business 20 years at that point. <laughs> you got in young. Uh, but I was a young kid in fucking Las Vegas at Caesar's Palace. Are you kidding me? It was freaking great. Yeah, no, that's a, a great point. Uh, what, so um, this, this is a joke. We got a lot of perks being in the business. You know what I mean? Not perks that. Probably Send those with the pictures. So w- what about you and the wrestlers? Did you guys ever take advantage of your popularity and go see some shows together? I, you went and saw Luther with your girlfriend, but what was it like going out with the boys? Okay. Uh, we were in, me and Sambu were somewhere, ECW. Uh, it might have been Detroit area or something. And some cat comes over, some guy comes over, and comes into our dressing room, you know, they let him in because he said, oh, I got a message from Sabu. And Sabu said, hey, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm Sabu. And the guy said, well, my buddy's playing next door. He's a big fan of yours. Uh, he wants you guys after you match or anytime you want to come over for a few minutes. Uh, Method <laughs> Man. Oh, yeah, from the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, so Method Man loved Sabu. Who knew? And, and and he invited us backstage and shit. Um, you know, another uh, guy I just seen is seven years ago. This is pretty cool. He's a national treasure. He's a movie star, a singer, and a songwriter. In fact, he's such a big songwriter, 
he wrote a song for Janis Joplin called Me and Bobby McGee. Christopherson? No, I was, oh, no, his son was a wrestler, Jody uh, Christopherson, you know. Chris oh, Christopher's really? Son. Pretty fucking cool. Yeah, and I was in re I was in rehab at the time. Serving my time in rehab, straight and narrow, kind of. We all need a vacation once in a while. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk a little ECW. Like, what, what did uh, other musicians, I'm sure, were definitely, like, into Rob Van Dam and, and Sabu. Were there any other musicians that, like, would approach them? Uh, Kid Rock, Uncle Cracker. Just have, you know, they were, I'm just naming off names that, that, uh... Do you, do you remember what kind of music uh, RVD and Sabu used to like to listen to on the car rides? Sab, Sab, Sabu, car ride, he liked the heavier music like Judas Priest. Right, yeah. That was his favorite band. You know, Sabu Judas has Priest. my all-time favorite entrance music. That, that song is freaking awesome. Oh, fuck yeah. We had some great... Let me ask you a question. How the hell did Paul Heyman and ECW get away with playing all that music on TV and our TV shows uh, and pay-per-views and the Enter the Sandman and all that is music. He had a great Sandman, a great intro. Uh, the whole fucking audience would sing that song. You know, the Sandman's intro was fucking 15 minutes. I think they just outlawed it. I, I, you know, I think that the music business was making money hand over fist at that point that they just didn't really give a fuck about what this guy was doing. And lucky enough, it worked for him, it, you know. I, I guess because you can't do that now. You can't play fucking uh, music, uh, Ozzy Osbourne or Black Sabbath or anything like that. Fucking or, you know, uh, any big music, you, you got to pay for it. Well, man. you know what? It's great to hear such an avid music guy and some awesome music stuff. And real quick, uh, Insane Clown Posse, they came to uh, ECW, right? Oh, we did. We, we were doing a pay-per-view. Down with the clown. Uh, yeah, they came. I went back, uh, seen them several times. They were really big into wrestling. In fact, they wrestled. We did a pay-per-view in Fort Lauderdale, and they came, and we did a little skit with them, and Sabu and Van Damme beat the fuck out of them. For, not a beat down, like for real, but was stiff to them, you know what I mean? Because they're musicians. They're not wrestlers. Uh, so, they, you know, Sabu was a little uh, hard on them. Uh, tough on them, but they were really cool guys. They gave us jerseys and fucking shirts and anytime backstage. Because uh, me, I was affiliated with Sabu and Van, Dam and Van Dam, so I was in. Like, you know, if they invite Sabu, they'd invite me too. You know what I mean? What was it like going from WWE to ECW? Well, WWF at the time, but it, like, well, it was pretty. It was pretty cool because. I had been all mainstream, and I had been friends with Paul Heyman from the, from the 80s in Florida Championship Wrestling with Dusty and Eddie Graham and uh, Bobo Brazil and all those guys. Uh, so when I finished up in WWF, we used to tape Monday night. I was on the first Monday Night Raw, by the way. Uh, so we would tape on the first one. Monday Night Raw came out. We did one live show. Then we... Uh, on Monday, then Tuesday, we would do another show, and that would be for the following week. And then Wednesday, we would do another show, put it in the can, and be for the third week. And then every three weeks, we'd go live one show, tape two shows, and so on. Uh, so I was friends, my, my point is, I was really good friends with Paul Heyman. I met him early. So I just finished WWF, finished my uh, deal there. And 
So uh, this is the first time I've been off for fucking uh, years. I've worked steady. All the mainstream companies, Florida Wrestling, Ted Turner, WCW, WWF, Vince McMahon, been in Japan 13 times. So I've been around the fucking world. So I get a phone call from Paul Heyman because he knew I finished up. And he's a big star by this time. You know, he's been to AWA and Vern Gagne and, and WCW and, you know, uh, the Danger Zone and all that. So he, I get a phone call and Paul Heyman says, hey, Fonzie, hey, Paul, I haven't talked to him in a long time. Uh, but it's like when I see you guys, it's like we never left each other. Like, you know what I mean? You're friends forever. So he said, hey, Fonzie, I got this company in, in Philadelphia called ECW. I said, what the fuck's ECW? Because I've worked all these big all these big companies. I don't know what ECW was. He said, well, this deal, you know, a hardcore company. He said, I get this idea that uh, since you just came from WWF and conservative, Vince McMahon wants the doctor, the doctor's wife, and the two kids at ringside, not 70% audience age of average age of 30 years old, you know, like ECW hardcore. So he says, we're going to bring you in for four weeks and you're going to be anti-violent uh, and try to stop our ECW hardcore production and try to make us like Vince, or, you know, his sports entertainment. And uh, so it, it worked, you know, I ended up being there five years. Of it. And ECW, was, I, had, I had been to all these major companies and suddenly come like Turner and Vince, I was making six figures, small, like 100, 105, 120. That's a lot of fucking money for a fucking kid from West Tampa. You know what I mean? Uh, then I went to ECW and we were making, but I was only working Friday and Saturday, which was beautiful because WWF and other, uh, we worked seven to, seven to 10 days on, three days off, seven to 10 days on, three days off. So it was crazy. And ECW was my favorite company to work for didn't make as much money as the other places but it wasn't about the money at that time that made a bunch and i already had a house paid for all my shit paid for it's crazy uh ecw was a fucking gas it was fucking beautiful man loved it it's fucking great now right now we're sitting in philadelphia you're talking to three guys from philadelphia the uh corner of swanson and rittner is a few blocks from where this podcast is being recorded, so you can actually see J.A. and I in some of those videos. Those people wanted to beat the fucking piss out of you. What was it like getting out of the arena some nights? I'll give you one example. Well, I was a character, really. So my character, the same guy, uh, uh, my first four weeks, um, well, anyway, there was a Taipei death match between Axel Rotten and Ian Rotten, that's where they taped their hands up with that white tape that the guys use. Uh, and then they would dip their hands in glue and then dip their hands in glass. It was called a Taipei death match. I, I could smell the COVID. <laughs> the, the wrestling fans have been waiting months for this match because they know it's going to be gory and bloody. And the two guys, Axel and Ian, are known for bleeding big time. So I was a special referee. Remember, I was anti-violent. I was just, you know. So they introduced the match. These people were fucking foaming at the mouth with this match. The bell rings. They lock up. Bam, bam, bam. Ten seconds into the match. Ian, um, Axel Rotten hits Ian like above the eye. And Ian starts bleeding like a Girl Scout. I mean, one little fucking drop of blood. It was fucking ridiculous. 
So I, I fucking grabbed the microphone, ring the bell, ring the bell. <laughs> Due to the lack of vision in uh, Ian's eye, I'm stopping the match. People wanted to fucking hang me. I had to have a police escort <laughs> from the building to my car, and I didn't. I stayed at a different hotel. But as my character started developing, and I was beloved, uh, the same people who spit on me would buy me a cocktail at the Marriott. Where did you come up with that um, charisma? Where you were, you um, I never saw anyone like give their uh, wrestler a water, uh, spray him down with water, uh, do the wrestler's maneuvers like shadowing him. How did, how did that all come about? I think that was a natural thing because um, I'm going to give you two examples. I think uh, everybody knows Taz, right? Him and Brian Cage last night, you know, national television. Well, I, po- I posted a picture of me holding that fucking world belt <laughs> on Twitter. On Twitter and I said to... Uh, I said, hey, daddy, how can you give the F, the, the fucking world belt away when half of it belongs to me? It got like over a thousand fucking likes in one in two days. That's your belt, baby. Because of the belt, he just gave it to him. So if I would have posted that uh, picture with me holding that belt uh, two weeks ago, it wouldn't, I would have got 50 likes. But since it was on national TV and it was a big deal, I got thousands of likes. So... Time is everything. But anyway, my point about uh, my character, uh, Taz, before he became Taz, he was like five different gimmicks. He was Tasmania, Monkey Boy, Gorilla Boy, whatever the fuck he was, never got over. So how we got over is when they put me and him together, not that I got him over, he became Taz. He's portraying him himself. Because Taz is a dick. It was the chemistry. You know, he's like, like uh, he, he's, I love Taz. He's a nice guy, but he's kind of a, you know what I mean, a badass. He's not a people person. Go fuck yourself. Uh, so that's just like our producer himself. Yes. So how Fonzie, uh, I'm really hyper. If you can tell a little bit, I'm really hyper. And so I just added about 30% more of the hyperness to my character and people can see that because I can't do something I'm not like Taz, Tasmania never got over. It was some fucking gimmick, but when he became Taz, he got over. Uh, so it's, it's Fonzie's a character. It's me amplified about 35%. And, and and what about the whistle? I mean, uh, the the whistle might have been the worst part of it all. And it was funny too, real quick, because well, like Paul, when when I came when I when I came to ECW when I came to ECW, when I came to ECW, and I was supposed to be there for four weeks and get choked slammed by nine one one, and then I was done. But the 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 angle got over, and I started getting the heat, and Paulie kept me and kept me and kept me. So finally, I went with Taz because Taz got hurt for real. And so he took like six weeks off and they kept me because the angle was going good. And then when Taz came back, his first night back, we shot the angle where he grabbed him, went out to the ring and said, fuck you people, fuck ECW and fuck Joey Styles. Nobody called me. I was hurt for six weeks. I didn't get one phone call from the company. Nobody called me. Nobody sent me money. Nobody cares about Taz. The only person who cares about Taz is Fonzie. I said, that's right, Daddy. I called him every day. It's on tape. If you watch the, you can find it somewhere. It's on YouTube. 
Uh, I called him every day, and this is all I was his manager. So at the end of the night, uh, Paul Heyman said, Fonzie, we're going to put you in Taz, give me his manager, it's going to be good, and here's a whistle. I want you to blow the whistle when you come to the ring. It's your new gimmick. I said, a whistle? <laughs> I didn't like it at first. I was embarrassed to blow it. I didn't like it. Oh, my it. God. So the next week, <laughs> the next week, uh, I showed up in Philadelphia with no whistle. I left it home purposely, hoping Paul Lee would change my gimmick. He said, Fonzie, where's your whistle? <laughs> I said, oh, I forgot it at home. What? Fonzie, that's your gimmick. You can't forget that whistle. Oh, my God. Uh, he said, one of the referees, go buy five whistles right now at the sports place to bring them back to Fonzie. And then after that, I got it. I said, damn, I love blowing my whistle. <laughs> and now I love blowing my whistle. And if you didn't know my name, you say, oh, that's that fucking guy who drives me crazy with that whistle. I mean, so I love the whistle. It was... And still today, people identify me when I go to these, all these conventions and uh, spot shows and seminars and and uh autograph appearances people want to hear me blow my damn whistle it is a heel move that whistle <laughs> it was i mean it, it was actually you know like the time when the internet was starting to like you know give people uh inside terms so to speak and i'll tell you man i hated yes. the whistle i was a big time mark i couldn't believe it i wanted to fucking choke you on sometimes oh. with that whistle but Okay, so if that's, right. I would say the two most things you're asked about, would it be the whistle and the Beulah McGillicuddy match? The, the top two questions are the Beulah Fonzie match. And if I didn't bleed that night, we wouldn't be talking about it today. Oh, if I didn't yeah. get that good juice and then almost bleed to death. You know, I'll tell you the story about the hospital. I was scared shitless watching that match. I almost bled out, the doctor. So head trauma, um, uh, so, so the number, the, the top two questions I get is a Beulah match, and they asked me about the Lex Luger Brody match. That, I was going to encore with they, that. They booked it. That was a referee. It was in Fort Lauderdale with the War Memorial Auditorium, and Luger freaked out. He's kind of young, and they were handpicking his opponents and grooming Luger to be a big superstar. And they put him in there with Brody, who's temperamental. He's not easy to work with. He's a lovely guy. I love. I loved. Bruiser Brody, and we were really good friends. I've worked with him for years. But anyway, he went and sell for Luger. I said, he said, Fonzie, what do I do? I'm punching this guy. He's not selling. He's not doing nothing for I said, just listen to Brody. And Brody was beating him down a little bit. Not too bad, but... And Luger finally freaked out and fucking jumped over the cage and left. He <laughs> was back in the car, all in his uniform, and drove back to Tampa. So that's another big question. So let me finish telling you about the Fonzie. Yeah. Oh my God! I, I, please, I need so anyway, to hear about this. The match was only seven. The match was only seven minutes. So, I, yeah, but I, I couldn't sleep open, for about three weeks. And I got busted open about thirty seconds into the program. So I went. I bled for about six minutes. Pretty damn good. All over so the place. The match, Your entire shirt's uh, covered. Your entire shirt was covered in blood. It's not sweat. It's blood. I, would, I, I, w I wish I would have wore a white Ugh. shirt. You're right. <laughs> so, uh, so after the match, you know, head trauma, there's always got to be a doctor in, in uh, Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. They require any performance like that, boxing, wrestling, shoot, fight, kick, boxing, whatever. There's got to be a doctor on, set, on board and paramedics. I'm booking. Something happens. So... I come back from the ring, I'm bleeding like a pig. Every time my heart would pump, 
fucking blood was squirt out. So <laughs> they couldn't stop the bleeding. So they ended up putting us uh, like a cold piece of steel on my head and taped it up, <laughs> taped my head up, uh, you know, uh, and rushed me to the hospital because they guesstimated I lost 30, over 30% of my blood and I was getting weak. So when I got to the hospital in an ambulance, it's head trauma. The hospital was full because it was a Friday night or Saturday night. Hospital was full of gunshots. Philadelphia. Water, you know, people in the emergency room. But head traumas, they take them in right away. So they took me right into the fucking room. And this nurse, I'll never forget it. This nurse says, what happened to you? I said, oh, I fought a girl. I got busted open. <laughs> she starts undoing the tape. I said, well, ma'am, if I were you, I wouldn't do that. She says, listen. I've been a nurse for 27 years. Don't tell me how to do my job. I said, okay. So she undoes the fucking tape, takes the fucking cold uh, piece of steel off my head, and the blood uh, squirted all over her face and all over her white fucking uniform. She was fucking pissed. Anyway, so uh, then she seen the gash on my head and uh, that I was losing all that blood, and she, called, she hit a button and four or five guys come in there and shit. And they brought in those paddles where they jumpstart your heart with electric paddles, <laughs> whatever they call it, defibrillator, whatever. So I said, what are those for, Doc? He said, just in case. I said, okay. So I started getting weak and I got somebody holding my legs up so the blood had rushed back to my head. It was crazy. I ended up getting like 30 stitches inside and out. I lost feeling in the top of my head for like three months. I could, I could brush my hair and couldn't feel, um, couldn't feel the, my head. Uh, so I want to go home because the next day I got a 7.30 flight back to Tampa. We're in Philadelphia. And the doctor said, oh, no, you're not going nowhere. You got to stay in bed for, we're going to uh, keep an eye on you overnight, observe you, take your vitals because you lost too much blood. I said, nope, I can't do that. Well, you got to sign a release stating that you refuse to stay in the hospital. So I signed the release, and the doctor gave me some advice. He said, listen, you suffered a big fucking gash. You lost a lot of blood. I suggest you go back to your hotel room, drink a lot of orange juice, be still, lay in bed, whatever you do. Don't smoke a cigarette. Don't smoke pot. <laughs> don't have a cocktail. No drugs. Relax. And I don't even want you to fly. Don't want you to fly. Uh, I said, okay. So the la you can't walk out of the hospital. The lady's got to put you in a wheelchair. She's going to wheel you out to the car. So the lady's bringing me out to the car. There's Sandman in the parking lot. He's been waiting for me, God bless him, for two hours, you know, in the park. So I get out to the fucking parking lot. I jump in the car. He's got a 44-ounce 7-Eleven Big Gulp full of vodka and cranberry. He shoves a Percocet in my mouth, lights a joint. We go to the fucking Holiday Inn and close the bar down. Never slept up on the plane, went home. <laughs> Crazy shit. You know, I shouldn't be alive today. You didn't, you didn't feel like I, telling I, the nurse, oh, you should see what the girl looks like. <laughs> uh, you know what? Bueller called me fucking every day. Cause I had to take a week off because I was, you know, it was a pretty severe fucking gas on my head. And I was weak or whatever. So I took a week off. Bueller called me every day. Fonzie, I'm so sorry, and you're all right. She sent me flowers. She was a sweetheart about the whole thing. I'll tell I you, though, it you didn't stop day. her. It didn't stop her. She saw blood, and then she beat the heck out of you for about six minutes. Like, she threw you over every guardrail. She hit you with everything she could find. 
Well, if it wasn't for the blood, that would have been another match. I mean, the match is okay because we're two non-wrestlers. Yeah. You know, we're not wrestlers, no, but it's, we it's, can't do a leapfrog, crossbody, small pack. We can't do all that shit. We got to no, have kind of a street fight type thing. So we designed that match and it came out pretty good. And if it wasn't for that, I fucking sliced my head off and we won't be talking about it today. Yeah, no. I mean, and it's, people, on, it's on four or five different DVDs that Vince puts out. You know, you can buy it as good as it gets, a bloodbath, blood sport, whatever. It's on four or five different DVDs. And Paul Heyman's narrating, you know, Joey Styles does the comedy for the match. But, uh, you know, when you buy a DVD, the, somebody introduces the match. So it was Paul Heyman saying, well, uh, um, how can we follow? They just showed the Bob Wire match between Terry Funk and Sabu. And that was pretty brutal when Sabu almost ripped his arm off. Yep. He said, I, I don't know how we can follow that match, but ladies and gentlemen, we're going to follow it with Beulah Fonzie match. <laughs> One of the uh, most seven intense minutes in pro wrestling, not just in ECW, in wrestling history. That's the way he describes it, not me on fucking Vince's show. You know, Vince's DVD, so that was pretty cool. Okay, how about I'll take it a step, but 20 years later, intergender wrestling is like, you know, a thing, and these people work on these matches for days at a time. That, organically or whatever, was the greatest intergender match of all time. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that, and a lot of people do like that match. We're two non-wrestlers, and again, if it wasn't for the heavy blood flow... We wouldn't be talking about it today. You you also did some other like um, intergender kind of matches in ECW with like you and Taz versus like Sandman and Missy. What, what yeah, was stuff we like did that? A couple little things like that, but it wasn't anything like the Mueller match. Oh nothing, yeah, but and I well, because I was the bad guy. Really, I wasn't a bad guy. I was a character. You know, I was beloved. After a while, when I walk out with Van Dam or Sabu, fucking, I was getting stand. Innovations, not me personally, but all our group. You know what I mean. So I became quite the character. Uh, uh, and when we did the other skits with with other little angles and stuff with Missy High and our friend scene and all the, uh, it worked, but didn't work like the Bulafonzi match. Uh, well, you know, I don't want to take up all your time. I'm going to run through a couple quick things and see what you have to say about them. You worked uh, the Rob Van Dam, Jerry Lynn feud. What was what was watching those matches up close like? They were having sensational matches. They just were two beautiful, talented, professional guys, man. They put on really good shows. They, I tell you who's talented back in the 80s was Barry Windham and Jake Roberts. Jake and Jake Roberts were having fantastic matches. And that reminded me of those, you know, because they were so good. It was crazy so fucking good. Those, but, um, if I think Sabu is a perfect symbol and representation of ECW, you would say Sabu. Absolutely. You know, he's ECW. You know, the blood and the guts and how he works and his worth ethics, his worth ethics and his style and the way he works so good. And then... You want to talk about a package, you can talk about the whole fucking show. Van Damme was, nobody was like Van Damme. I mean, he was the whole effing show, for real. He was doing some great shit back then. So, uh, who knew there was a market? Nobody knew, or else somebody would have did it before. 
who knew there was a market for that hardcore blood, sweat, underground, black market type wrestling, hardcore. Who knew there was a market for it? And the only reason we didn't keep carrying on because we had no corporate sponsors, we had no big money. So I'm going to give you an example. Uh, these numbers aren't exactly true, but you'll get what I'm saying. Say ECW was making $13 million a year with all their pay-per-views and their gates and their merchandise, but we were spending $14 million to put it on. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? No corporate sponsors. It was tough for us to keep going. Um, and our, and uh, I'll tell you, like, the, Vince ended up buying ECW, but Shane, uh, Vince's son, Shane McMahon, loved ECW. You can tell because... All the crazy shit that Shane does, like, you know, he wrestles once in a while, he'll dive off the top of the cage and do some crazy shit. He loved ECW. Loved it. Um, Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, sometimes as the referee, you're the first line of uh, defense if a fan jumps into the ring. What happens there? Well, I'll give an example. Uh... Usually, and this happened several times to me, I was uh, refereeing a match between Dory Funk Jr. and Dusty Rhodes. And the heat got on and Dory was beating the shit out of Dusty. And uh, I see a fan coming. He's so excited. You know, everybody knows wrestling's a work. You know, it's entertainment to a certain degree. Um, so this fan got so hyped up and got carried away that he lost his mind and he comes over the rail, over the guardrail. I said, oh, okay. Then his next move was he's getting in the room. He's trying to jump up on the apron. Now he's on the apron and he's going to bend down and go between the top rope and the second rope. You know how you bend down to get in and get in the ring. Uh, he was doing it like, so once he got in the ring, before he could stand up straight, he was bending out. I grabbed him by the hair and held him down in that position, like that bent over position. And it, and uh, Dory came up and gave him that big fucking uppercut while I was holding him and knocked the guy out cold. Um, and there's many times when they jump in the ring, it's like a deer in the headlights. You know, they freeze once they get in. They they must have not thought that they they don't think it through. They jump in the ring, and I don't know what the fuck their reason is, but <laughs> they don't think it through. They lose their mind, and then they say, "Oh my God, I'm in the ring with uh, you know Sandman and Taz. Oh fuck, I'm in trouble!" And then they beat the fuck out of them because <laughs> it's like throwing a piece of meat. To Seemed like line. a good idea after that eighth beer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe I didn't think this crazy. through. <laughs> Okay, right, well, we'll wrap it up with a couple questions. Uh, Rick, one Ric Flair story. Because, you know, when I was a referee in Florida Championship Wrestling, one of my jobs was, you know, refereeing, of course. And my, one of my other jobs, I had many, would say, you know, we were territory. Every Monday night was West Palm. Every Tuesday was Tampa. Every Wednesday was Miami. Every Thursday was Jacksonville. Friday, Saturday was spot shows. And then Sunday was Orlando, and this would repeat itself. How could we, it's impossible to do that today. So I look back at some of the sheets of paper 
and uh, the attendance in Miami Beach Convention Center, we're drawing three and 4,000 people every Wednesday night. How do, we, how do we do that? That's crazy. You know what I mean? You can't run every Wednesday night in Philadelphia and draw 3,000 people no. for fucking eight years in a row. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So... So what was my point? I lost track. Oh, uh, we're gonna you're gonna tell me a cool Ric Flair story. I guess he picked up the bar tab or something at the end of the night. He was so over and so talented, and he knew how to work. He's telling us so. They're gonna do a joint show. Uh, Fujinami's group, Antonio Noki, and WCW were gonna do the first time a joint show, and it was a sellout. Sixty-five thousand people indoors at the Tokyo Dome and indoor that's a lot of freaking people inside. Uh so and they asked me to come over. I hadn't signed with WCW yet. I just uh um so they asked me to come over and, and referee uh the main event which was Flair and Fujinami uh and there was a bump involved. I take a bump and and Fujinami throws Flair over the top rope, and I see it. The other referee comes down because I take a bump uh, and get hurt. The other referee continues the match and counts uh, Fujinami pin Flair and counts one, two, three, and they give him the bell. And I'm saying, no, no. And finally, I come to you and say, no, 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 no. He threw him over the top rope at disqualification, snatched the belt from. Uh, Fujinami gave it back to Flair. Those Japanese people didn't like me at all. But Flair was so cool. After that, he was such a cool guy. And uh, we went to the Hard Rock Cafe after. You know how everybody buys a T-shirt, right? You know, the Hard Rock, you know. But I had been to London, uh, Berlin, and told you I bought the leather jacket. The Hard Rock Cafe, they're about four or $500. For a nice jacket, you know, beautiful leather jacket with the logo on it for Hard Rock Cafe, and then it says Tokyo. And uh, no, no, Flair was buying one. This is my first one, and I ended up buying one from every Hard Rock I went to, like Berlin. And I got three of them. So Flair's buying one for somebody, and he says, Fonzie, you want something? Uh, he, says, he says, Oh, just get a leather jacket, and he paid for it. Very wow. generous, man. Very Woo! generous. Uh, and a big fucking drinker. My God. At the end of the night, when it's a last call, uh, Flair would say, 30 kamikazes. So he'd have a tray, 30 <laughs> kamikazes, because the bar last call. Crazy. Fuck. Crazy shit. Um, and I used to drive remember when he came into the territory, my whole point was saying Monday night Tampa to, I mean, uh, West Palm Tampa and continue the shows. Um, uh, Flair would fucking drink every freaking night, man, like that. I don't know how he did Woo! it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, well, uh, well, we'll end it with this. Um, I want to. I I consider you one of the greatest managers of all time. What are what's well, your thank Mount Rushmore? You very, much. very flattering. For you no, to I really that. do you love because wrestling. very cool well, for as, you to say that. Especially when I look back on it, like the third, fourth, and eighty seventh time, it's incredible how you. Um, really what you do for some of your guys but what's your mount rushmore of managers and then let us know what you're up to today with like matt justice and stuff well i'm gonna name three or four because it's hard to pinpoint one. that's what like, i say yeah i want to hear your, your top three what's or four your, what, what's your favorite match you know what i mean I can say yeah no no that's what I, I can say barry Wyndham and jake to say i can say dusty Rhodes and kevin sullivan 
There's too many great. But I like uh, Gary Hart was a manager back in the day. Sir Oliver Humperdinck was a manager back in the day. Uh, um, Paul Ellering, uh, Jimmy Hart, of course. Uh, a good one was uh, he could talk smack, country boy, the tennis racket, Jim Cornette. There's so many. Yeah. But you know why they're all good? Because the companies has 30 guys on their roster, and, and, and there's 500 guys that can wrestle. So it's you better be on your A game. So I was surrounded by the most talented people in the world when it comes to professional wrestling because we're working for the big companies, and if you're not talented, you don't last at all. Oh, I, I, I so saw it. I, yeah, I and I know you got another – podcast coming up i really appreciate you taking out the time for us um we would definitely love to have you back on oh no thank you guys i'm flattered that you guys saw called me and said hey fonzie come on my show fuck yeah hell yeah daddy you'd love it yeah thanks a lot bill oh jay that was absolutely tremendous we learned a lot about bill alfonso that was great what was your favorite part it's just when he was talking, I would think back to the old ECW days of, of watching him and Sabu come out to that entrance music and getting me fucking hyped, and I, and I would tap whoever I was with, like, shit's about to get awesome right now. Sabu is fucking walking in, you know? Guy yeah. was the best. Unbelievable. Yeah. You didn't know yeah. what the heck he was going to do. Barbed wire, fire, tables, what the fuck? Everything he did was over the top. And this is in know? the you know, mid-90s, you know. Dude, when he would jump up on the ropes and then into the crowd, forget about it. You know what I mean? It was fucking... And then we learned a lot about his musical taste and whatnot, you know. At the, by the age of 13, this guy had already seen Joplin, uh, James Brown, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, wow. Bill Alfonso owns three hard rock jackets, brother. <laughs> yeah. How about that one? <laughs> We're talking leather. <laughs> Ric Flair got him one, bro. Yeah, that's that's, right. that's Bought time. Bought by Ric Flair. That is insane. I mean, imagine just... And, and that, was only, that was only probably like a third. And a thousand dollar suit. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Well, what's up with our social media? We actually have some social media accounts. I started some social media accounts. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're at Rock and Wrestling, but no A. N D. Rock and D Wrestling. Rock and D Wrestling. Rock and D Wrestling. On Twitter. On Twitter. W-N-D. Do you use the Twitter, Eric? Uh, I can. Okay. They just had a uh, all those Twitter, like a lot of famous people just got hacked on Twitter. I don't know if you guys saw yeah. that. I should get on that. Hopefully we get big enough to get hacked. So yeah. on Twitter, we're Rock ND Wrestling. And then we're I also own one on... share of Twitter stuff. <laughs> I do. How's that doing? It's going to do really well because they're going to be the first social media account that's paid. What, um, when did you get in on your... Uh, About three days ago. Oh, okay. Okay. So there's a stock, new... Guy. Hot stock tip. <laughs> hot, yeah. So not only do you get... Ro- Once they become like a paid stock, it's going to be a paid... Um, yeah, service. service. Yeah. They're going to like less ads... And they're going to, like, change the algorithm so you can... Remember when you would go no, on totally. Facebook and you could be like, I'm an old city tattoo. And then somebody would be like, shit, I'm right around the corner. Like, now that shit pops up three days later. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm an old city tattoo. Well, Two just like a uh, streaming service, you already have a guaranteed amount of income yeah. coming in at certain points. Uh, but, yeah, so on that Twitter, we're Rock ND Wrestling. And then on Instagram, we are... Uh, Rock and Wrestling. We actually got the A-N-D, so we're Rock and Wrestling Connection. Rock and Wrestling Connection. Rock and Wrestling Connection on on Instagram. 